Oh, hi. Welcome to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. This is where Louisa and Beverly bring you the experts, the stories, and the research impacting the cybersecurity profession today. We've got a little clip that we're just going to play. <laughs> and then I think we'll have a little chat <laughs> before we go to Graham. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll play that clip now. So, Louisa, you... Are you the English one or you're not the English one? I am the English one, but ha- I'm not sure Come if on. my accent reflects that. How long have you been out there? <laughs> Seven years. My goodness. And they've assimilated you. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. Well, that's a funny outcome, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I gave you Graham on a platter. <laughs> I gave you the Brit talking to the Brit. And isn't it hilarious? He asks, are you the Aussie? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you haven't even say? got your Aussie citizenship yet. I know. I'm more Australian than you are. <laughs> I should have had that gig. It didn't make any difference. <laughs> I know. But it's a I'm very sorry. good chat. Thank you. So let's go to it. Graham Cluley, welcome to the Cybersecurity Cafe. Oh, thank you very much. It's a very nice cafe you've got here, isn't it? Isn't this gorgeous? (laughs) Thank you. So you're a fellow podcaster and you're host of the award-winning Smashing Security Podcast. You're also a public speaker and an award-winning blogger as well. So just wanted to thank you for joining us today and making some time. Beverly and I are huge fans of social security. Oh, stop it, stop (laughs) it. It's a real pleasure to be here. And it's always great to see other security podcasts popping up. And so when you were, I think it must have been a a few months ago now you guys started, didn't you? But when I I saw you pop up, I thought, oh, this is fantastic. And, uh, of course, you're coming from that side of the world as well, rather than America or Europe. It's, It's good to see another podcast coming from down under. So talking of down under, have you ever been to Australia? I have, yes. I've been there Ooh. a couple of times for work. Um, I My very first trip there was uh, ooh, maybe about 2014, perhaps, I'm not sure, um, which was to a keynote at a conference in Sydney. But more recently than that, I went back and did some uh, talks in Sydney and then in Melbourne as well. And so, Graham, I have to ask you, did you have any wildlife encounters while you were in Australia? I try and avoid wildlife as much as possible. Um, so, uh, you know, the idea of even going camping in Britain, which you can imagine is a bit of a joke compared to camping in Australia, uh, fills me with dread, uh, the thought of it. No, so I, okay. I did pretty much stay uh, within the urban uh, environment uh, rather than get a chance to go further afield than that. Moving on from um, from wildlife... I have to say, I feel like I, I know you because I listen to your podcast with you and Carol and, and oh. your guests every week. And I often scare people on the tram because I laugh out loud. <laughs> oh, Out of wonderful. nowhere. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's such a joy to listen to your podcast. And even though I feel like I know you, I thought, oh, I better do some background research uh, on you, Graham. Oh, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, a couple yes. of things I discovered. Uh, one is that you have 1,458 different passwords. And uh, <laughs> I'd love to – I saw your little post on Twitter. I'd love to chat later a, a bit more on your thoughts on passwords and how we, how we should be managing, managing those. Um, I know you've also got a dog. Um, oh my gosh, is this is right? like, what, what is this? This is like open source intelligence. So you, you, <laughs> if you know the name of my dog, then you've probably got into my Yahoo account already. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's like. <laughs> no, no. I, I get your newsletter, oh. Graham, and you mentioned you're going to be building a custom, I think a dedicated office. Let's call it a shed. For Let's call it a shed, shall we? A shed. <laughs> But yeah, I'm I'm going to be moving down the bottom of our garden because um, basically they're a bit sick of me being in the house. And every time I'm recording a podcast, you know, it's, we can't put the dishwasher on. We can't play video games. You know, the rest of the family are grumbling at me because I'm doing that ruddy podcast thing. So, yes, I'm yeah. being chucked down the bottom of the garden pretty soon. And have you ha- had any of those BBC News moments with little kids running in? Oh, my goodness, I have. 
Um, I remember once I was live on BBC, uh, I think it was Radio 4, which is quite a serious sort of uh, BBC yes. station, um, national station here in the UK, talking about some data breach or some privacy scandal. And suddenly my uh, study door burst open and my son raced in. I think he was probably about four or five at times going, Nina, Nina, I'm a fire engine, daddy. <laughs> and... You you have to decide quickly how you're going to deal with that situation. And he sort of he sort of did a U-turn. He sort of did a J-turn and skidded out of again, <laughs> thinking he because he's just gone his uh, adventurous uh, uh, fire extinguishing scenario, which he had playing in his mind. But I decided I'm just going to completely ignore it and let everyone imagine this has just happened in the BBC radio studio, rather than here in my end. <laughs> So I'll pretend nothing's happened at all. But, of course, everyone's seen that uh, great video footage of the chap who was on BBC News. I think he was a, an expert on North Korea or something. Yes. Um, yep. I mean, that is a reality if you're working from home and doing media interviews, um, as yep. I do sometimes. Um, that is very much a, 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 an existential threat to your <laughs> continuing presence yes. on the media. <clears throat> Let's get on to how you landed in cyber security or computer security or info security or whatever the security is. We yeah, want, we, we should really just, someone needs to decide what we're actually going to call this. Shouldn't we? we should yes. think after all this yes. years. Some people don't like the cyber bit at all, do they? And then I've, I've, security sounds like it might be like you're guarding the Mona Lisa or something or a pallet of bricks and info security somehow seems a bit twee and old. I don't, I don't really know what you're, anyway, anyway, that thing which we're doing, um, I started, uh, well, actually, it, it all started for me when I was at college, I, where I was studying computing. And to supplement my income, I used to write computer games. And my computer games used to contain a little message at the end, sometimes to the tune of Love Story. Do, 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 do. And it said, I'm a poor, impoverished programmer. And I only dream of one thing, which is to uh, go to the local supermarket and fill up my shopping basket with a, a huge number of packets of cheesy biscuits. And I said, <laughs> if you enjoyed this game, please help me by sending me £5 or £10 uh, through the post. Because these were the days before the internet. People didn't have the internet at home in these days. Uh, yeah. People didn't, didn't have broadband, you didn't have websites. And so I, I just had to beg, basically, people to write out a cheque, put it in an envelope, write the name, uh, you know, my name and address on the front and put it in the post and it would arrive a few days later and they would hope that I would honour my word and send them something back like a sticker or a map of, of the game or something like that. And uh, amazingly, people did this. And one day I, um, I popped home uh, and there was a big parcel on the doorstep. I remember it still. I opened it up and there was a copy of... Dot Solomon's antivirus toolkit, and there was a packet of cheesy biscuits, which was great because I I I hadn't, I hadn't expected them to send me the cheesy biscuits, and a check for twenty pounds, which is more than I'd actually asked for, and a couple of drawings uh, by this guy's kids who'd enjoyed my games and they'd sort of done drawings of the games, and he said, if you ever want a job, give me a ring, and it was Alan Solomon who was the leading antivirus expert. Uh, in the UK at the time, and you know, he, he was doing quite well, I think, in Australia too, uh, back in yeah. the day. Um, he was basically the British version of John McAfee, but not as mad, because, <laughs> I mean, slightly mad. That's good. But yeah, no one could be as, no one does the full McAfee quite like McAfee, you know, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, Alan was a huge character, and I rang him up, and he gave me a job, and he said, I'd like you to write the very first version of Dr. Solomon's antivirus toolkit for Windows. And I said, well, you do know I've never written a Windows program before. And he said, it doesn't matter. Nobody's going to buy it. He said, everyone is going to buy the OS2 version. Because uh, at the time, Windows wasn't really a big success. And a lot of businesses were buying OS2 instead. So I wrote the Windows version. Alan Solomon wrote the OS2 version. And it turned out he was wrong in that gamble. <laughs> and the Windows version succeeded. And um, over time... I stopped being a programmer and started talking about the threats and uh, giving presentations. And then I went to Sophos, which many people have heard of. And I founded with Carol, who's now my co-host on Smashing Security Podcast. We founded a blog called Naked Security. And uh, we, we got lots of attention for Sophos that way. And then we uh, left Sophos about six years ago. And we're doing our own thing. 
What an incredible story, Graham. I did not know that about you. And just, yeah, how how fascinating that that you received that package and <laughs> oh it completely changed my life it comp- i was so lucky um i did have an interest in computer viruses before then i remember when i was at college that i was signed up on various email mailing lists including um something called virus l which in the old days before twitter um experts and people with interest in infosec communicated via this mailing list and so i was on that mailing list and i was fascinated by these things called viruses i uh, i've never written a virus let me emphasize i've never done that uh, i'm one of the good guys um but uh yeah it was always interesting and back in those days you you kind of wondered whether they were an urban myth you kind of wondered if they were really real because people would sort of say oh you know i, I had a cousin once who had a computer virus you go get off you know <laughs> because because it, it was the late sort of 80s and um and early 90s but then of course the problem began to become huge and over time organized criminals got involved and well you know we we know the situation which we're in now um when I started writing antivirus software, there were, I think, 200 new viruses every month. And uh, a lot of our customers would get their updates sent to them through the post on a floppy disk every three months. That's how often your updates got. If you were really paranoid, you could get a monthly update sent to you via the post. And today, so 200 a month, today, there's something like, it's about half a million every day. You know, it's like two or three every second uh, coming out. It's astonishing. The problem, I would never have believed the problem of cybercrime would have got quite as huge as it has done now. Of course, we've got governments and the like involved in it too. It's not just spotty oaks in their back bedrooms. (laughs) That's just a fascinating story. Thank you for (laughs) sharing that. Kind of fast forwarding to today, can you tell us more about what that what that is and what that looks like today? Yeah, so uh, so I, I run my own blog, GrahamClearly.com, uh, where I just talk about and pontificate about whatever's in the news of computer security, just trying to give people advice in simple language they'll understand. And um, I also write for a number of other security blogs as well from different vendors, just to uh, uh, put a few farthings on the table. Um, the other thing I do is a lot of public speaking, so I give talks at conferences or you know uh, maybe it'd be an awareness event or raise an awareness of computer security issues and the most exciting thing i do which we've already mentioned is that i do a weekly podcast called smashing security and this is really where my my biggest enthusiasm is for at the moment i i've always loved podcasts and uh carol who's my best friend and was best man at my wedding um <laughs> was oh. <laughs> i i was i was one of her maids of honor to be honest when she got married as well um and so <laughs> and so um she'd been nagging me for years because she also loves podcasts and said you know we should really do our own podcast and then uh around about two and a half years ago she she we actually uh started and we've been doing it every week since and uh, but uh but it's, it's a lot of fun and also we have we have terrific guests coming on each week as well and yeah. uh, sharing their viewpoint. And it, it, it's been fantastic how people have supported us by coming on the show and uh, talking from their viewpoints as well. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And I have to say it was the zombie grannies that um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that made my day. I had a really boring bus ride back from Melbourne Airport. It was really late and I tuned into your podcast and you started talking about zombie grannies well just, again laughing inappropriately out loud in on public transport i mean we we don't do it i mean we're not just arsing around on the podcast obviously there's an element of that but uh it, it, i think there's an important point here which is that people get educated the best first of all you don't say it's an education right you don't say we're now going to have a lesson but people yep. people learn things um if they're having fun and I, I do think there's a problem in the industry of the geeks speaking to the geeks. And uh, th- there are some podcasts where I know the content is fantastic and it's much deeper than what we get into. But it's almost like, you know, I- I'm a nerd, but you're kind of excluding me because this is getting too much into the nitty gritty here. And to explain this yeah. by a podcast is very complicated. And I, I do feel it's very important for us to try and be accessible to everyone because everyone's got a computer in their pocket. 
Everyone's banking online. Everyone's buying things online. Everyone's on a social network. People are struggling with passwords. So we have to be able to communicate with them in language they understand if we're going to have any hope of dealing with this info security slash cyber security, whatever we're going to call it, problem. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that, Graham. As you said, making security fun, but then having those the learning that underpins that as well without feeling like it's a lesson, as you said, yeah. uh, is, gr- is great because actually through that particular episode, I learned the latest on what was happening with applications, what the risks are at the moment and what to look out right. for. And, and it is it is hard to stay up to date with the latest developments <clears throat> in well, cybersecurity. There's such a tidal wave, isn't there? I mean, there is just constant, constant news of breaches or vulnerabilities. And uh, I mean, we do try and focus on things which sometimes are a little bit quirky. I mean, sometimes if there's been a humongous story, um, like the Capital One breach, we, we feel that we have to cover it. Other times we think, you know, everyone else has talked about that. Maybe we'll talk about something different um, rather than just, you know, reiterating the same points other people have been making. But yeah, I mean... Basically, we, we, we try and make a podcast that we would like to listen to. Um, and, you definitely uh, do that. Oh, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> Talking of threats and breaches and things like that, what are the threats that we should be focused on right now? So I, th- I think uh, for businesses and small businesses in particular, um, it's quite important, yeah, to, to, to work down and to narrow down exactly what are the biggest threats to your firm and where the biggest dangers are. And some of those aren't going to be very sexy. Sometimes you see a piece of research, which is like an amazing piece of research done by some uh, security analyst somewhere. And you think, well, that's that's extraordinary what you've worked out how to do. But is that a threat in the real world? And the biggest threat right now, I think, for most computer users, uh, particularly if, if you're working inside a business is phishing. Um, which isn't very sexy. It's been going on for 15, 20 years. But, you know, that the reason why it continues to be such a big problem is because it works. And it is basic phishing, which resulted in John Podesta's account. If you remember, John Podesta was the chief of staff of Hillary Clinton yep. during the 2016 presidential campaign. That's what the Russians did. They fished him. They sent him an email which looked like it came from Google. Um, irony was he actually was suspicious of the email he sent it to his it team and they responded saying this is a legitimate email uh rather than illegitimate email you know that the, the world could be a different place if they'd be if they'd actually typed it correctly but obviously the, we don't know if that's the only reason that she lost the election but it certainly didn't help her campaign at all to be distracted by that kind of those kind of revelations and those data leaks uh, which then came out via wikileaks but um, but phishing is a huge problem uh, and can, of course, mean that your passwords get compromised and bad guys can break into your accounts. And if you don't have two-factor authentication in place, then it's going to be child's play for them to get in. Two-factor authentication, of course, doesn't mean 100% security, but it certainly means you're more secure than most of the people out there who don't have two-factor authentication enabled. But another uh, big risk, um, if I just mention one more, is business email compromise. And this is where, in fact, the form of it has changed recently. It used to be they send you an email claiming to be the CEO and saying, I'm in a very important meeting. You need to wire money right now into this bank account. So you'd think you'd got an email from the CEO telling you to wire millions of pounds into a bank account for some top secret business uh uh, opportunity which the company had and you would simply do it because you always do what the boss says but that has now transmogrified into an attack where the bad guys pretend to be a supplier to your company so maybe they've already fished one of your staff's email accounts so they know what projects they're working on maybe a construction project maybe uh, we've seen a number of schools for instance who've suffered from this whether it's multi-million pound construction projects and then the bad guy creates a bank account in the name of that company and they then contact the accounts department at your company uh, saying that their bank account details have changed and they basically just send an invoice in and say, we've completed this work, can you please pay us? And when your accounts department speaks to the employee and says, has this contractor completed the work? They say, yes, they have, please pay them. And the money goes into the wrong account. 
And we've seen organizations lose tens of millions to exactly this kind of attack, which is no more sophisticated IT-wise than those letters from Nigeria. It's really not that complicated. It's just phishing someone, breaking into their email, sending a fake invoice in. It's, it doesn't require writing ransomware or something like that where you have to know about encryption. It's, it's fairly simple attack, but incredibly lucrative. And I just saw a report which is saying that every single day, around about $10 million is being lost through that particular kind of attack. So, you know, basically billions and billions over the course of the last couple of years. What can be done about it? Is this a process issue within those businesses or is this something that we can expect, you know, the the technology innovators to find a way to solve? It's a combination of both. Um, certainly you need... Uh, good policies in place as to how to handle when a supplier or when a contractor changes their bank account, how you confirm this really is their bank account. You know, do you get on the phone with them? Do you use, in which case, make sure you're using their previous contact details rather than the ones they've just emailed you with. Um, but so th- th- there's those sort of procedures which need to be in place. So you need to get a second person to sign it off and say, yes, they have done this. Absolutely to verify that is their real bank account. But you can also use technology. You can also mark emails as they come into the business to to say that they're from external uh, places. They could also look at the domain name which is being used and verify whether that is a domain name which you've communicated with in the past. You can also use uh, technologies like DMARC, uh, where you actually look at the the email headers and you can you, you can determine whether this has come genuinely from a server which has been approved to send email on behalf of that company and you can raise alarms uh, if if that's not the case so it's a variety of technology and human process and to be honest i think most computer security is about that as well i think technology alone doesn't really effectively stop most of the infosec problems which we see out there i think Fundamentally, cybersecurity is a human problem rather than a technological one. And that, that's why we can't actually fix it, because we can't roll out an update to people's brains. <laughs> Wouldn't it be good <laughs> if we could? <laughs> <laughs> in some cases, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, Graham, what's everybody talking about in Europe? Other than Brexit, obviously, which is uh, a complete omni-shambles, uh, which is happening at the moment, which which may also have uh, some interesting impacts as well on uh, on cybersecurity, at least as far as the UK is concerned, and how uh, the, the law enforcement agencies work together as well. But uh, I, I think everyone has been uh, fascinated to see GDPR rolling out. Yeah. And of course, just recently, we've seen some uh, huge uh, fines uh, being proposed against companies who've lost control of their data or suffered some kind of security uh, mess up. And uh, I, I think that's beginning to focus uh, the minds of executives more and more um, as they see, you know, big, big companies being hit by, you know, a hundred million dollar fines or more. Um, then I think people are going to think, you know, we can't afford to have this happen to us. And suddenly, that irritating guy in the IT department who's been saying, I really think we need to do a security audit. Can you please approve this, boss? Um, is hopefully getting their, their authorization signed off uh, a little bit more smoothly as a result. Yeah, that would be good, wouldn't it? And and because it, it has felt like up until now that fines are, you know, just a cost of doing business. And even the uh, British Airways <coughs> one, I think some people are kind of commenting about the fact that that's – that's a small amount of money for, for a large organisation like BA where a, an engine on a plane is hundreds of millions of dollars. So it, it, do you think the fines are big enough? It sounds like, you know, you're starting to see that tide turn, but do they need to get bigger, do you think? Well, they, they have the ability now to go up to 4%, I think it is, of gross global turnover, um, which is, I, I think any company is going to balk at unexpectedly having to pay that and having to explain to its shareholders why it's been hit by that amount. So I think when we see, as as breaches get worse, and there surely will be worse ones still to come, I think the fines may well rise. And, uh, you know, we're we going to probably see company after company being hit to a lesser or greater extent. And so it's, I think it will focus companies' minds more and make security more of a priority, which is, you know, 
is no bad thing at all because it has been treated sometimes as a little bit of a nuisance, I think. I think there's been an attitude sometimes in some companies that if nothing has happened, what did the IT security department do? If if an IT security department does a great job and they don't get attacked and there's no breach, then you may well come to the end of the year and think, well, why did we spend so much money on IT security? We didn't have a breach. It's like, well, hang on, you didn't have a breach because you spent that much money on IT security and making sure that we weren't vulnerable and rolling out the patches and educating our staff and all the things which you put into place. Um, you know, people only tend to notice you when a, a, an actual screw-up happens uh, rather than when everything's actually going really well. Yeah, just kind of linked to that, do you think we'll see security being part of um, businesses, I guess, their value proposition. I was reading some research that came out earlier this year from Accenture that talked about the Mm. fact that businesses will start to differentiate on trust more than they will on price or the technical solutions that they offer. So do do you think that's, you know, is is that going to become more important to businesses to be a trusted and secure company? I would love to think that it was. I'm I'm a little bit sceptical. I mean, the, the most obvious example of a company which does kind of go in that route is Apple, yep. which does differentiate itself very much from some of its big tech competitors by saying we're the ones who are going to, you know, take privacy seriously. And they're, they're using that in their marketing now to say we're, we're about security and privacy rather than making money out of your data yep. and monetizing it that way. I mean, that. You know, doesn't mean they're a great company. You know, they fleece you when you go and buy their products, right? You pay a fortune there. Whereas if you want to buy an Android phone, it's an awful lot cheaper. But Google is banking on the fact that they will be able to make their money later on from your data and uh, through advertising and so forth. So I I would love to see more companies do that. It would, you know, I can't predict the future. I think it would be fantastic if they do, but... I worry that for many people, it still is not going to be that sexy an incentive to buy a product from company A rather than company B. There are so many people right now who will go out and buy IoT-enabled gadgets, you know, toothbrushes which are internet-enabled or washing machines which are, you know, daft things which don't need to be internet-enabled, but they will simply do it because it's like, oh, it's got more bells and whistles, therefore that's the one I want because it does more things. It's more ticks in the box rather than, this is a toothbrush. It's great at brushing your teeth. And uh, so p- people sometimes are distracted. You know, it, we're geeks, right? So we get distracted by the shiny things and the bells and whistles and we, we get excited about it. I, I can imagine if I hadn't entered this career that I probably would have an Amazon Alexa or I would have IOT'd my house or I'd have a Google Home or something like that because it would be a cool thing to play with. But because I work in this particular field... There's that little bit of me, you know, that devil on my shoulder going, well, what, well what, why would you want, you know, why, seriously, why would you want, what would you actually do with it, Graham? Yes, it's a nice toy, but what would you actually do with an Alexa? The, by the way, I hope you don't have any listeners who have Alexas, because I've said the word about four or five times <laughs> oh, no, now. you just set them off. <laughs> we, we, we have to bleep them out on our podcast. We get complaints. Uh, so, but, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, it's, you know, I... It, it, I, I would love to think that security and privacy will become more important. Maybe it's going to take some real stonking fines and maybe the collapse of some companies for others to say. The, the other problem, though, is that people can have really short memories. So if you suffer a data breach, if, for instance, your telecoms company loses your data and people begin to get fleeced, do you actually change your telecom company? Do you switch to a rival? I suspect a lot of people th- think about it at the time. When the, when the story's the front page of the newspapers, they might think, oh, I'm going to go to the opposition, you know, I'm going to change my telephone company. But then a month later, you know, when your contract comes to around for renewal, you're kind of thinking, oh, it's a bit of a hassle to do it, isn't it? And I, I think a lot of people are complacent and they just stay with these companies even after they've been careless with their data. So how many people, for instance, are still with still on Facebook, uh, despite all the privacy scandals involving them? You know, there's billions of people who are on Facebook and it, it just depresses me that people don't think, you know, or people don't feel capable of leaving because they have so much of their friend infrastructure there. Or that's their primary way of keeping in touch with people. 
is via that site and they just think, well, you know, I, I hate Facebook, but I can't leave Facebook because otherwise I am um, cut off from all of my pals. Yeah, and <clears throat> I have to say that the the great hack that um mm. you got any fo- thoughts on that because I was just going to mention my friend in the UK he watched it and then sort of said I still yeah I'm I'm still going to be on Facebook and Instagram like it hasn't changed uh, yeah. the a- yeah. action that he takes as a result what what are your thoughts on whether the great hack's going to have this any is influence the- this is the Netflix documentary, yes. isn't it? The Great yes. Hack, which just came out a, 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 you know, a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, I was a little bit underwhelmed by it, to be honest. Um, I, I wasn't necessarily expecting it to tell me anything I didn't know, because I've been following this story of Cambridge Analytica, um, obviously, for some time, like the rest of us. Yeah. Um, but I, I would have preferred it maybe to have... Uh, to focused more on the observer journalist Carol uh, Cowalder, who's been doing fantastic investigation into Cambridge Analytica, its impact on the American election, how it was also uh, assisting uh, with the Brexit referendum, which we had here in the UK on behalf of the uh, the Leave side. Um, I think there are st- still a lot of revelations there which aren't being reported by the mainstream media. Um, it, it, which, which maybe, you know, questions need to be asked and proper investigation done into some of that bit. There was an awful lot of focus on one of the uh, Cambridge Analytica's former employees, um, Brittany Kaiser, I think. Yes. And she, she was she was a, a bit of a strange character, um, let me say. Uh, she was <laughs> she she was a bit of an odd fool, wasn't she? Um, yeah. But I, di- I didn't I didn't find her particularly um, enchanting or interesting. I, I just I just got a little bit sick of watching her travelogue as she was uh, enjoying her infinity pool in Thailand. And uh, I just thought, well, why, why, what's she saying that's really useful here? So, but she seemed, she seemed a little bit odd. Um, but I, I would have, if she was going to be involved, I would have liked to have had more meat or, or, or more surprise at the end, maybe, or more of a revelation. Yeah. And I, I, I felt like it sort of faded away. But back to your friend, I think that is completely typical. I think people find out what happened with Cambridge Analytica, with Facebook, with some of the other scandals there have been over the years. But they kind of think, ah, oh, so what? Because Facebook's worth it for them. Facebook means they get to see funny cat gifts or they get to, you know, chat with their mates or they find out where they're all meeting up to go to the bar tonight. And it basically, you need that momentum. You need all of your rest of your social circle to leave at the same time, to go somewhere else for you to feel comfortable to do it. People feel very uncomfortable doing it on their own. It, it, and it's also like an addiction. What We did an episode, our, our best, um, our most popular episode of our podcast was called Quitting Facebook, where we describe how you can try and quit Facebook. And we have a guest on Maria who is currently on Facebook, but she feels she needs to be there. She's got a young kid, keeps in touch with other young mums and things like that. And uh, it, it really brought to light that, you know, even if you know the bad stuff about Facebook as much as Maria does, she still finds it hard to leave. But one tip that she had regarding Facebook addiction was why not remove the app from your phone? Why not just take it off there? You can still log in manually if you want, maybe on your desktop or laptop computer, if you want to check what's going on once a week. But get away from that checking every five minutes to see if there's been an update. I think that would be really helpful for people's mental health. I think it would be really good for that. But it would also be good to sort of begin to wean yourself off the need to get that constant update from Facebook as to what's going on. So I would love, because we mentioned it earlier, the number of passwords that you have being 1,458. I would (laughs) (laughs) just find that. And counting, and counting. (laughs) Just a a huge number. But I'd love to get your take on how you manage those, first of all. And then secondly, what's the messaging we should be sharing about passwords? Because I think it's still confusing. We've got obviously the advice around passphrases, but then people are wondering whether they need to include a number or a special character in that. And then we've Mm. still got websites enforcing other things. So what's your view? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. So yes, uh, as I said on Twitter, I've currently got 1,458 passwords. um, And the reason is that I have a different password for every uh, online account, which I create. Um, uh, because that's the sensible thing to do. The biggest problem with passwords, 
And password security is password reuse. Too many people are using the same password on different services. So if one service gets hacked, the hackers, first thing they'll do is they think, oh, I've just grabbed this password from uh, Graham's LinkedIn account. Let's see if it also can let us into his email or his Instagram or whatever else that I might have. Um, so it makes sense to have different passwords. But on top of that, your password needs to be gobbledygook. It needs to be complete gibberish. It can't be a dictionary word. It can't be a word that's easy to guess. Uh, ideally, it's not even a word. It might have numbers and funny characters and square brackets and all sorts of nonsense, maybe even be a phrase with all of those as well. Um, anything like that makes it harder to crack as well. And I'm no genius. Uh, I'm, you know, I, there's no way I would be able to remember 14 passwords, let alone 1,458. So surprise, surprise, I use a password manager. And it still shocks me how many people are not using a password manager to securely store all of their passwords and to indeed generate new passwords when they create new accounts online. Um, uh, it, it's just the sensible thing to do, in my view. So for anyone, I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast knows about password managers, but what you basically have is one master password which unlocks your password manager. It may be combined with some form of two-factor authentication or a touch ID as well, but uh, it, it, it's something which stores all of your passwords securely, and so when you go to a website to log in, uh, your browser will pop up and say, oh, I know the password for this particular website. Would you like me to install it for you, to enter it in for you. And it communicates with your password manager software and enters it. And bingo, you're in. And that's why you could take a crowbar to me and I wouldn't be able to tell you my email password or my Twitter password or my Skype password or any of those because I simply don't know them. All I know is my my Uber master password, not my... Not Uber. Not you know what I mean? My, my, my super duper master password. Yes. <laughs> Oh dear, there, I've given it away again. But yes, obviously, you need to make sure that your, uh, your master password is a strong one, uh, using all those rules, you know, having complicated things. Uh, and some people say, oh, but you know, it, it, couldn't we use a formula? Some people say, well, how about using an algorithm? So you take the domain name that you're visiting and you add, uh, 08 on the end and you add, uh, these sequences of characters at the beginning. And there you have a unique password for each domain. And it's like, well, you could do that. But if someone worked out your algorithm for generating passwords, they could then get into anything, couldn't they? Yep. Plus, isn't it just easier to use a password manager? <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's simple. So just use one. Yeah, it so is. I, uh, I've had one for a couple of years now and couldn't be without it. I don't, I used to be that person that was, I was trying to create you know, clever passwords and remember them all. And it just used to get so frustrating because yeah. I felt like as a security professional, I had to lead by example. Um, but that was actually pretty challenging. So password. It, it doesn't it doesn't scale. And yeah. maybe I'm unusual having quite so many passwords, but I've been on the internet for 25 plus years. And over time, you just, you know, it's like, oh, I'm logging into a Doctor Who forum or whatever, you know, chess site or something like that. I'm going to need a password. So I get my password manager to do it. And I can tell it if this particular, I mean, some websites are rubbish, right? Some websites will say you can't have a password which is more than 10 characters or there are certain characters you can't use, which is really bad. But some do do that. And, but I can command my password manager to generate a password which follows their rules and then remembers that password for me. The, the, the other, the other, the other thing which may be useful to listeners as well is I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners like me have got elderly parents or elderly in-laws who you are basically the tech support guy for. Um, and you're, you're the person they call up when they lock themselves out of an account or they, they, they can't get their computer to work. And some of these password managers have great family plans whereby you can actually sort of have uh, sort of master control of their password account as well. And so, or you can reset it for them or you can reset their passwords remotely and say, okay, look, I can tell you what your password for Facebook is or whatever is the site that you're trying to log into. And uh, I use my password manager in that way as well. So I have additional password vaults for, for instance, my, my mother-in-law so that if she can't remember a password, I can look it up for her and tell her what it is. Oh, that's fantastic, Graham. I didn't know about that feature, so I'm going to 
I'm going to check that out as well. Yeah. And, and you can also get those sort of things as well, obviously, inside enterprises. So that's the other thing. You know, we talk about password managers a lot. It's not just for individual users. There's also corporate password managers. And uh, I've often been depressed by how many companies aren't using password managers inside their company. Yep. And so the IT team will give everybody a password, which is some dumb default password, which everybody knows for logging into systems. It's like, no, no, you shouldn't be doing that, guys. You should have a password management enterprise solution, which lets you manage passwords across your environment. And then, of course, um, can maybe even tell you when people leave the company, uh, they can alert you. These are the passwords they had access to and ones which may need to be reset. Yeah. So I'm, I think that's pretty exciting that that's one of those significant challenges we have in, in security and there's a solution already. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, all, all of these things, if they're used properly, you can't just buy the box and put it on the shelf and hope the magic rays <laughs> would emanate throughout your enterprise. So you have to set them up properly. You have to think about how you want to run them. But once you have it in place, then hopefully we can harden security. So anyway, password managers are my number one tip for people as to how to improve their security. When I get in the back of a taxi and someone says, what do you do? Um, I normally get out, by the time I get out of the taxi, I've told the guy, you know, get a password manager and stop reusing the same password in multiple places because most people sadly are making that mistake. I love that. I often ask, what's the one thing we should mm. be telling people when we are in an Uber or a taxi? And, and I think you've just delivered that. So thank you, Graham. <laughs> so, Graham, what password manager do you use out of interest? Well, I'm a little bit nervous about answering that question <laughs> because, you know, obviously all of my crown jewels are inside it. Um, and although you'd have to target my personal PC to, to, to um, hack into it. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you some good ones. That's a good idea. So here, here are a variety of good ones. Um, there's LastPass which comes from LogMeIn. That's a good, great password manager. There's one password, uh, number one, followed by password. There's another one uh, called Dashlane, um, which is very good. Um, but anyway, there are others out there. That, so there are some great ones out there. Check the reviews on competent sites. And many of these will offer a free trial. So you can try them out, see if they work well with you, see if they suit you. Um, but, you know, my view is whatever password manager you end up using, it's going to be better than what you're doing at the moment. So just get a password manager. I'd love to ask a quite a pointy question as the last one. What, from your perspective, Graham, what does the future hold? Oh, well, you know, we started off this podcast talking about how things were 25 odd years ago with 200 new viruses every month. Yep. And now we're half a million every day. And we now have a situation where it's no longer kids in their back bedrooms eating pizza who are writing the malware or doing the hacking. It's governments and law enforcement agencies and uh, organized, serious organized criminals. You know, everything has changed so much. I'm very wary of predicting the future um, because this is an industry which has kept my interest and fascination because it has changed so much and because you can be surprised every day about what's just around the corner. I think... The problems aren't going to diminish. I think problems are probably going to get worse. I like to be optimistic that people are going to end up being more secure. And there is some good news. You know, I think operating systems today are much more secure than they used to be. I think more and more companies are recognizing the need, uh, for instance, to build better security into routers or into IP TV cameras. There's still a lot of bad apples out there. I didn't mean to say apples. A lot of bad <laughs> players out there. But, you know, it, but, but, you know, m more firms are beginning to wake up to the potential danger. So that's promising. But I think there are also plenty of criminals and unpleasant, unsavory individuals out there who are using the Internet to spy, to steal, to extort and to prey upon the vulnerable. And so what we need to do as a community is we need to give people the knowledge, we need to give people the tools to properly protect themselves and inform them about what's going on on the internet that's bad. Because there's so much great stuff about the internet, so many incredible things which the internet brings us. But it would be such a shame if people are driven away from using technology because of all the bad stuff. So if we can provide them with a simple way of being that little bit more secure, then maybe they'll get more of the benefit of the web. That's a fantastic call to action. Thank you for that. And just to to close off, how do we 
how can we follow you? I, I think you know that I'm already following you, but uh, for, for anyone, <laughs> for anyone, <laughs> I am following you back as well. So. Thank you for anybody who wants to find you on on Twitter or sign up to your newsletter or the podcast. How do they do that? Oh, that's very kind of you. Well, uh, yeah, I'm quite active on Twitter. I enjoy Twitter. So my uh, account on Twitter is called at G Cluley. So that's G C L U L E Y. Um, you can also find me at grahamcluley.com. That's where I'm blogging. And the name of my podcast, available in all good podcast apps and quite a few crummy ones, is uh, Smashing Security. Smashing with a G. Uh, security. And uh, if you haven't been too nauseated by this conversation, please come along and have a listen. Thanks, Graham. And I'd just like to congratulate both of us because as two Brits, we just managed to get through a whole hour without talking about the weather. So no. It's actually one of our rules on our podcast. We, we refuse to talk about the weather because we just think, why would anyone be interested in, talk, you know, listening to us talking about the weather when we recorded this? The weather here at the moment is dark. That is it because it's midnight. So that's, that's my weather report from the UK to Australia and all of you listening. And by the way, well done on your great podcast. I'm really excited, uh, to see new podcasts springing up and it's fantastic. And that the more people, I hope you're having a, you're having a fun time making it. Oh, we love it. It's just the best thing we've ever done. So yeah, we are. Isn't that great? (laughs) Terrific. Well, more power to your microphone. And, uh, I, I hope to see many, many more episodes in the days ahead. Thank you so much, Graham. Thank you for making the time to, to talk to us today. We hope you will, will maybe come back again and we can hear more about what you're seeing and, and your views because they are uh, incredibly insightful. So thank you and bye-bye. Oh, it's my pleasure. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye. Louisa. That was so much fun. I'm feeling a little bit envious that I didn't have that chat. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for giving it to me. It's okay. It's okay. (laughs) Um, I thought he was just brilliant. I I really love his communication style. It's so friendly and he talks about the subject matter in a way that – yeah, it's so relatable. Yeah. There were a number of things that I thought were really quite funny that he said to you about the, oh, are you open source intelligence? <laughs> Is that your British accent yes. impression, that Beverly? Was my British impression. Have you heard my Aussie impression? Do it. <laughs> I'm doing it now. Oh, <laughs> oh I can't hear the difference. <laughs> couple of really good takeaways um that discussion around how much is enough you know four percent of your total global turnover is that going to be a wake up for shareholders to start asking questions about why did you have to pay this fine I think that's a little way off I can see it happening but I think we've got to move, you know, I think that's probably a good 12 to 18 months before that trickles down to shareholders and they start asking questions about why did you, why did you have to pay that fine? Because shareholders are asking a whole raft of other questions first about mergers and acquisitions and all those sorts of things. Uh, the, I think the other thing was, I did really like the toothbrush, you know, <laughs> the internet-enabled toothbrush. <laughs> yes. Why don't we just have a fit-for-purpose toothbrush that's very good at cleaning teeth? <laughs> we are a big gadget mad, aren't we? Yeah. You know, all and this IoT stuff. Yeah, is and just... I didn't want to admit to Graham because he <laughs> – I have a, a Google Home <laughs> – after he said all that, I thought, oh, I'll just keep quiet about my Google Home that I use every night to well, turn my lights off. Alexa, <laughs> when we publish this podcast, is going to go, yes, yes, <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> that was pretty good. And I think the last point that I wanted to leave you with was quitting Facebook and it, it, it's it, it's like giving up smoking, I think. <laughs> 
I did give up smoking a very long time ago, student, well, longer than student days, but it is hard to give up for people that are so connected and use it, but I gave up Facebook yesterday. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And I was never, uh, I barely used it, but it became kind of convenient to talk to uh, relatives overseas. Yep. But there's WhatsApp and there's other methods of communicating with them. And I really started my Facebook page when I was at the eSafety office looking for advice to provide on staying safe on Facebook. You know, that would end up being war and peace, wouldn't it? It's so big. How to stay safe on Facebook in a million words. Yeah, and I think the discussion I had with Graham about whether people actually take action following these privacy scandals was the most, you know, it was a very interesting discussion, but that was one Mm. of the most important things that I took away. And I think until people start voting... With their feet. Yeah, with their keyboards. Yeah. And they move away from businesses that Mm. don't take security seriously Mm. and privacy seriously. Then, yeah, I think, as he said... We're not there yet. The only thing I can think of we can be doing is just not sharing as much data with mm. businesses. When they ask, can we can we send you things? Can we um, share your data? Just say no. No. Give or them why the do you want it? What are you going to do with it? Yep. Ask more probing questions. And look, the convenience trade-off I know for a lot of people is a very difficult one. But ask more questions. Vote with your keyboard, apparently, <laughs> not your feet. That would be sneaker net. <laughs> Love it. Sneaker net. Let's get that trending. Thank you. <laughs> well, that was just fantastic. Thank you. And it was such a privilege to have him on. He was just so generous when we asked him, would he come on the podcast? And um, thanks, Louisa. That was a great job. Oh, it was an absolute joy. Hopefully that came across. And uh, if you don't listen to Smashing Security, Beverly and I highly recommend that you do because you may be laughing out loud quite significantly as a result. On a bus or a train or a plane. (laughs) Thanks, Louisa. Thanks, Beverly. Thanks for listening to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes. And for more information, visit cybersecuritycafe.com.au and find us on Twitter at CyberSEC Cafe.